Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. If you buy a building and you've got tenants and they're all on five-year contracts, you just re-up the pricing in five years. When you're building solar projects, you're locking yourself in for 10 to 20 years of this is my return. And guess what? There's no upside to that. I can't build more. I can't up your rent. More likely, there's more problems than I predicted. What if hailstorm comes? Or what if something comes and, and hurts that? Or it takes me offline, there's snow on it. Anything can create downside, but there's almost nothing other than replacing panels or doing something new technology that can give you upside. That's how you have to go in in looking at these projects. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. It is 2024, and for many of you, you are wondering, is this going to be the year, the breakout year for utility solar? Is it going to come back? And residential solar, are we ever going to see the bottom? And how am I going to raise money, hire people? What the heck is actually happening in the marketplace? Well, you're in luck because here on Suncast, we are answering a lot of those questions as we get kicked off into the new year. And today, I want to focus on the utility scale renewable sector, specifically from the investment banking side of the coin. If you haven't listened to Suncast before, we dig in with the leaders on the front lines of the clean energy revolution and principally from the mouths of the folks that are building those companies, the CEOs, founders, and thought leaders that I've gotten to know over my 20 years in the sector. I just want to welcome you in and say thank you for giving us the one thing that you won't get back, your non-renewable resource of time. We're going to give you a return on that investment. Today's entrepreneurs prove positive that you don't, in fact, need to be building businesses all the time. You can be making an impact by building upon existing companies. Rob Sternthal has 20 years experience, both building practices and practicing inside of other people's businesses in the investment banking sector from all the way back to being uh, at the SEC. We'll dig into some of the fun times he had uh, litigating in his early career through Millbank and many of the early pioneering companies that did investment banking deal making in the renewable sector. Rob is a managing director at Piper Sandler, where he's been since 2021. He helps lead the clean energy and renewable effort, responsible for financing more than $20 billion in renewable transactions over the last 15 years. We'll get into all of the many ways his work has touched your life, whether you know it or not, as we dig in. But know that Rob Sternthal is one of those guys that when I, as a young whippersnapper getting into the market, was trying to figure out how project development worked. He was the guy always on the stage. He was the guy at the head of the table at when I was finally invited into the room where the call, where the conversations were happening. He was one of those movers and shakers. And I'm really honored that I have a chance to ask Rob all of the tough questions, questions that 
you as a project developer probably asking yourself since the ira passed a lot of people in the renewal sector have praised the legislation as a panacea for our sector but is it really in some cases for hydrogen production gigafactories ev batteries solar panel manufacturing you probably are saying yes absolutely the ira is a tailwind it is gasoline on the fire as one of our guests has said but there are headwinds we're going to dig into those headwinds from the investor's perspective the developer's perspective and all of those in between hope that you'll stick around for the entirety of this episode as you have done for this abnormally long intro i promise it'll be worth it it's a new year and we've got lots to dig into you can find all of our back catalog of of clean energy leaders just like rob at mysuncast.com let's get to it here's another powerful tactical practical episode of suncast I've waited uh, eight years to bring today's guest on. Rob Sternthal has uh, given me guidance and guided from afar the industry at large for the better part of my career. And I uh, had a chance to get a little bit of insight into how Rob sees the IRA today. We're going to give you that insight as well. Rob, thanks for finally joining us here on Suncast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man. It's indeed my pleasure. So I want to start off with an inspiring quote. I'll give one and hopefully you've got one as well. I often quote Zig Ziglar and one of my favorites is everybody says they want to be free. Take the train off the tracks and it's free, but it can't go anywhere. <laughs> so we all need direction. Rob, today we're here to get some direction from you. Yeah. So the quote I picked and I had to do some research to come up with the, the quote that mm-hmm. was appropriate is the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. And that was said by Eleanor Roosevelt. I think there's almost no more appropriate quote I could find on the renewable industry. If you look at the believers and dreamers, the visionaries, yeah, many of who are on your podcast, yeah. driving this industry, you know, against everything else facing them. I love that quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. And you're right that in uh, in few other markets, do you have to believe so deeply in the outcome, in the possibility of the outcome, as you do in infrastructure? Because you really, truly have to see it being, you have to see it built. You have to really understand the purpose of the development, not just in solar, but we talked offline about real estate. And it's those visionaries who believed in the beauty of a built environment and the need for providing electricity to that built environment. That created a first, what we now refer to as the first world countries, right? The the infrastructure that we enjoy every day that we take for granted is because somebody had a dream. So that's a very, very, uh, a very apropos quote. And uh, also her husband had a thing or two to do with helping build the great American dream, right? Um, yeah, probably not too far off from the IRA. Right? Indeed, indeed. The, the topic, the, big deal. the yeah. topic of today. So we're going to talk Today's going to be a little bit different. I do want to dig into Rob's background, of course. I want you to understand how key he was to building three, maybe four of the most important uh, practices uh, doing investment banking boutique and and otherwise in our industry. But we are going to take some time and focus on the macro, which is the IRA. You know, Rob, I want to start on the outset to get a, a level set on how you think about, so I normally would say like, eh, let's give people an idea of what your work is like and what your business is like, but let's think through the lens of the work that your work influences. How do you describe the problem set that 
developers are going to need to navigate in this new world of an IRA where presumably there's capital ready to flow, but we've got a little bit upside down in the economics, frankly, for what we have known for the better part of the last decade as the way that renewable energy was financed, built, and deployed. Well, I think that's the biggest issue um, that, that you're referring to, which is, you know, that it, it's not just about the IRA. It's really about cost of capital. It's also about electricity pricing. So if, if you, when I first started renewables, one of the biggest things that we would always tell people is, look, energy pricing has gone up for 50 years, never gone down. That now has sort of been turned on its head that people don't necessarily look at these future curves as hockey sticks and aren't betting on merchant PP, you know, merchant pricing. Well, you bet on merchant pricing today, but you don't necessarily bet on merchant pricing 20 years from now. So right. you've got these two diametrically, you know, sort of opposing things coming together, which is, you know, money, but you also have this rise of cost. Um, there's inflation. So used to be able to sell projects as little as two years ago at like a 6% return. Now people are looking for something that's probably north of eight levered, maybe even 10 at times. And that creates a lot of pressure because you, you can't borrow money, probably uh, at least equity or all these credit funds. You can't borrow money for less than 15%, maybe a little bit less if you fully contracted or have something really exceptional, but generally no. So those things are, are huge headwinds. And we're not even getting into supply chain and trying to get panels, trying to get transformers, trying to get everything American made. And then you've got to go to EPC and get everything at prevailing wage. And so you've got costs going up. You've got electricity prices flattening or getting even. Um, that's not the case in certain places. So you start to see that trend reverse. Like in PJM, you start to see if you can get through that queue somehow, miraculously, you could probably sign a PPA in the 70s or 80s. Yeah, and for folks to seventy dollars to eighty dollars per megawatt hour is the is the metric for those who are not project developers or financiers who've been working <laughs> that's, in, that's in spreadsheets right. for the last twenty years. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG forty four hundred modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100 KW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. You know, you mentioned electricity prices um uh, i'm i'm as i'm taking notes i'm writing plateauing what's interesting you and i were down in puerto rico in the 10 in the 2012 time frame right um working on project zero and many others that finally are getting built right um and everybody was talking about how like buy solar because the price of you know in 20 years your prices of electricity which are now 24 cents and uh in that time in Puerto Rico are going to be 44 cents. And it's interesting. I always thought it was really interesting from an economic modeling perspective that we would propagate this like centuries old idea that electricity would always get more expensive 
when we're introducing a product that we wanted to scale and replace the old model, <laughs> right? That like, like you said, diametrically opposing forces. We're telling the customer, if you don't do this, but then all around them, they have to recognize that all of their peers are in fact installing renewables. We're, we're contracting the very thing that made electricity prices rise besides the fact that um, without getting into utility economics very deeply, could you, could you talk a bit about the impact of plateauing electricity prices on the ability for bankers to and project developers to price accurately these these solar assets in particular? Let's focus on solar. Well, let's go like we'll just go right to the numbers, sure, because I think that 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 really demonstrates it. So, you used to be able to build projects at you know eight to ten percent returns mm-hmm. long term. So a 40-year solar project might return 8 to 10%. In the first 20 years, you might have a contract. It might be a bus bar contract. And your cash yield on the equity you put in might only be 3%. percent might be zero. Like, you may be not making that much money for the first three to five years. And you're betting on the last 20 years of that PP, uh, of no PPA or a new PPA to, and electricity prices rising to get you to your return. So you've got people like you and me who probably won't be at the companies they are now investing for something that's going to take 30 to 40 years. That was the market. Today's market is, I'm not going to take no return. Treasuries are at five plus, you know, so first five plus. I can go lend money and on a 20 year, you know, solar project with almost no risk and make 6% cash on cash or something to that effect. So prices has gone up, meaning that now you're looking for cash yielding, cash flowing projects. The, the, the equity returns have gone up. You probably need to be in the high single digits, low doubles, um, at least on a single asset basis and a portfolio basis, it could be tighter, but pretty much that's what you want. In relation to electricity pricing, you need electricity pricing to go up, or you need to see a way for it to be higher in order to meet those returns because CapEx has gone up. I think panel pricing will come down again pretty soon. It's coming now, but it's still, you still have to build transformers. You still have to pay for interconnect. You still have these other things that are, that are costly. You have a prevailing wage uh, provision. Yeah, the economics, it's, it's interesting because um, for those who are unfamiliar, the economics are really pretty straightforward. There are a precious few number of ways that investors can get a return, a yield on the money they've invested. Either they invested at the holdco level, a capital, a capital capital stack that has a blended return over a portfolio, or they invest in a specific project. Um, and if you haven't, if you don't understand how development companies are capitalized, please go listen to the Blake Sturkey episode from early December 2023. Uh, we talked deeply about exactly how, and we probably talk a little bit about companies like Encore uh, Renewable Energy and the, the trajectory that developers are taking, but we talk about how developers think about financing the companies that build these assets. But if you don't have a project that has a uh, long-term committed procurement, meaning a long-term contract with a utility or a corporate off-taker, uh, increasingly places like Texas, folks are turning to the merchant market. The merchant market historically had higher, uh, higher returns because it's spot purchasing when there were uncontracted demand, right? Um, when the market needed electricity and they needed 
peaker plants. The reason that peaker plants were able to create power at affordable costs was even despite the fact that it was increasingly higher natural gas costs was because the merchant market demanded it and they could turn on instantaneously. It wasn't intermittent power that needed, uh, was waiting for the wind to blow that night in Texas. So the price of electricity stabilizing and in fact going down reduces the ability to forecast an increase in margin for the people that have to wait for the returns. Am I hearing that right? Yeah. It's a little bit even worse than that. Like think about like if you buy a building and you've got tenants and they're all on five-year contracts, you just re-up the the pricing in five years. When you're building solar projects, you're locking yourself in for 10 to 20 years of this is my return. And guess what? There's no upside to that. What's How do I effectively get any upside? I can't build more. I can't up your rent. I, I Maybe my O&M can get cheaper, but more likely there's more problems than I predicted. Like I'm predicting 98 to 99% availability of that system. What if hailstorm comes or what if something comes and, and hurts that, or it takes me offline, there's snow on it. Like anything can create downside, but there's almost nothing other than replacing panels or doing something new technology that can give you upside. And, and that's, that's how you have to go in in looking at these projects. Doesn't that explain in part why many developers started migrating to community solar? Because with subscribers, yeah, you can lock subscribers in, but you can like apartment buildings, trade out subscribers and and try to increase yield. I I would say no. I Mm. would say that that's a fallacy. Um, I think that most of the community solar market is now become more commercial. So I'm signing up commercial tenants for 20 years. The economics of community solar are better because they're willing to pay more because it's still a discount to what they're paying the utility. When you get into, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but but when you get into residential community solar, I have to sign up you, your neighbor, and the other 100,000 people that live on your block. Um, my concern is you may end up seeing like a T-Mobile sprint type fight for customers after, you know, once it's well established, people may shop you. In fact, I've gotten pamphlets here from, I won't name um, uh, the the energy source, but I've gotten pamphlets here and I've looked at it and the offer is not better than Con Ed. Right. And I have solar on my roof. And I have an EV in my garage. So <laughs> like, I've looked at all this stuff. I live this, right? Yeah. It's really interesting how, you know, we go to the conferences to try to learn how the market is working and see where the opportunities are. And folks talk about the, the thing right in front of their, of their face, right? Which is the economics today for a community solar project. And let's look back to like 2019, 2020, 2021, when people were really going, okay, Community solar has higher margins. This is a great place for us to point the arrows. And the reality, just like what we have seen in places like Hawaii and Puerto Rico, is that once we reach penetration in the market, the margins, like everywhere else, get compressed and there's high competition and we have to figure out new business models. Well, there's a, there's an ancillary to that, Nico. And the ancillary to that is that the best deals you can do are CNI deals. So small scale commercial and industrial deals that are on someone's roof. Um, a lot of them don't have ratings, but those are the best economics. 
and but you can't do volume. It's very hard. Like unless you're Madison Energy or unless you're Madison Energy or you're Clean Capital, or you're Greenbacker, it's very hard to really amass volume. You have to really have a machine. Now, so so those same investors go, well, I can't, I don't want to do that. God, that's like banging my head against the wall to get an extra two two percent return or two hundred basis points, as we would say. So community solar with its volume. Yeah, I'm building five megawatt deals, but I'm going to do 20 at the same time. I'm going to, I'm Summit Ridge, I'm Dimension, I'm Nautilus, I'm Nexam. I'm doing 100 megas at a time, building several hundred megawatts a year. That's hundreds of millions of dollars. That's why people aggregate it. And that's why you see more competition in that area. It raises the question that I know many people probably voice in private. What are developers going to do with these portfolios? And the question is, what are the exit points, right? So let's talk a bit about traditionally, your job is to help raise capital for and then help developers find a home to, to, to sort of exit, to, to get liquidity from this portfolio of projects they've, they've built. So can we talk a bit about the sort of the old way or like the traditional model and how you see it evolving? Because candidly, there are fewer and fewer options for exit. Like is Brookfield just going to buy everyone? That's kind of the same thing everybody was asking about. The five to 20 megawatt is next era, the only buyer, right? How do we understand the market going into 2024? If I'm a project developer who's seeing margins are compressing in every place, including community solar, and I'm not particularly good at building a hundred megawatts of CNI, but I'm really good at building, let's call it 20 to 30 megawatts of five megawatt ground mount plots, right? Like there are, there are different ways that people need to, or people need to start reorienting the way they're thinking about how the markets are looking at these assets and what the potential options are. I think that you have a better viewpoint than anyone on what's reality and what is figments of imagination these days. Right. So let's bifurcate the discussion. Sure. At an asset level, there's 80 to 100 parties at any given time willing to buy your asset, depending on the economics of that asset. If your asset hurdles, you got 80 to 100 buyers to, to go out. You're probably going to go to all of them. You're going to end up with eight term sheets and you're going to find that only three of them really can get to the end line. Maybe. On the platform side, that's where I struggle to see where the exits are. I think for smaller uh, platforms that are just getting going, given the consolidation we've seen in the market, there are still new entrants all the time. There are still, there's still a lot of money coming to the market there's still a pretty broad reach to go and raise capital because I'm raising hundred million, I'm raising 200 million or 500 million, fine. If I'm any one of these infrastructure players or PE buyers or pensions, I can still make money in five years by putting capital into that company, buying that company and, and ultimately selling it. What I've related to you, relate to you before is my concern is you've got these massive companies the, the silent unicorns. Right. Some of them have tried to IPO. Some of them have run processes and failed. Um, but the era of I'm going to build a billion dollar platform and sell it in two years is a little bit over right now. Um, and it's being driven by a number of things. But one is not the lack of money, but valuation and where valuation is. And it goes all the way down to the project level. So if I need to get 9 10% returns at the project level and you're building at 9 to 10%, even though you have a gigawatt of projects, I'm not sure unless you could show me a growth model that gets me above that and a lot more projects at, at better cost, 
that you're going to get a huge premium for your platform unless I really need that platform. I really want a battery platform. I really want a wind platform or a solar platform that hasn't come to market. Fine. But what happens when I'm a $3 billion company, a $5 billion company? The public market will be open. It's not open right now. It will be. I mean, we're doing IPOs right now for a bunch of energy companies, more on the the oil field services or oil and gas side, less so in renewables because even the SPAC market tanked. And I think that that hurt a lot of people in the renewables market. So that market will open. We believe it will open maybe even next year. But I think that's one of the issues, right? You're, you're coming out as a new yield co or whatever that may be. But who else is going to buy a $5 billion company? Like who's got the check? And, and not only that, even if I were that and I'm building that big company, I'm now buying something for $2 billion. I'm going to put another $2 billion into it. Then what? So the ultimate end game, for the most part, has to be the retail or IPO institutional market. Right. My, I guess the point of that is that it's still there, but you're going to have to be patient and you have to wait it out. So if you talk to the largest infrastructure players, that's what they'll tell you. But that being said, let's look at the immediate problem. You probably have, I'll probably be under, call it 5 to $10 billion of credit funds that have lent money or provided development capital to 20 of the largest platforms in the country. And they're lending that capital or providing preferred equity at 15% anywhere 13 to 15% plus maybe some warrants and you're building projects at eight to 10% and you have to repay them or you have to re-up or you have to find a way. So that, that is the issue. If you don't have patient capital, if you don't, if you have a fund, an infra fund that's 10 years old, they've got to move or they've got to raise a new fund. And they like, so those pressures are coming on some of the bigger players, right? So you've kind of got two major buyers. If we take the equity markets out, the IPOs, right? We've said that IPOs have not really worked. And you've got two major buyers, the big institutional, well, maybe three, right? Because why we, we haven't touched on institutionals like the pension funds in, in Canada and France that traditionally bought a lot of assets. Um, so you've got public market, you've got pension funds, you've got large infrastructure asset holders that are also themselves power companies like the Brookfield, Total's, EDFs, AES of the world, right? Mm -hmm. They've been building all of the oil and gas projects and now they've migrated like Shell, everyone else, Chevron's all coming coming in behind them. All the mid-market oil and gas companies are going to come in to the fold in the next 24 months as well. Are they? I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't see that. No. No, you still, okay. Well, we'll get to that in a second. So- who are the buyers in the next 24 months when we know that like the PE firms, well, I, it sounds like PE firms don't see an exit for the companies they've already invested in and they've got to get out of them. And so they're not likely to rush in and buy a whole lot of other uh, asset or portfolio companies, right? So you've got the small guys that are going to find 80 to 100 um, buyers if they've got projects that, that yield at the levels that we're looking for, which is low teens. But anybody who has exceeded, let's call it 500 million in platform, they've got a problem right now and nothing the IRA can do to help them. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, the re and, and who that matters to beyond the developers is 
the investors that are already in those deals because they've got to. Exactly. But, okay. but sometimes the investors are money good. So if I'm a credit fund and I've lent you this money, like I could just take over the, the company and I, I can, I, I'll, I'll be patient and I'll, I'll get out. I'll be successful as long as you're not over levered. If there's equity, sometimes there's a lot of equity in these companies and the equity has got to protect itself by taking out or refining that. And you're praying for these interest rates to start the, the walk back to start happening, which is probably not happening. Is there any value to looking outside of the United States market for additional development uh, yield boost? It's hard to get volume. Like it, uh-huh. it's hard to get real size outside of Brazil and Brazil mm. because you can't hedge the Ray really gets tough. And, you yeah. know, there are already major players in Brazil. So like we've, Rufield. yeah. Or, or Atlas, like we, we've yeah. looked at, you know, we've spent time, we, we did a buy side representing someone in the, in North America looking to buy a big platform in Brazil. And they, it just, it wasn't as additive. It, it's difficult. It, it comes with issues. So if you're a North American developer, focus on where you, where you live. Yeah. It's very local. Um, so I don't think that is the answer. Yeah. Per se. Okay. There are always, look, there are always still, especially out of Europe or the Middle East, there are always new buyers. You, you always, you know, have to keep looking. There's always a need. Someone has a need. And, and by the way, I'm really focused here on more utility scale solar. I wouldn't say this about the battery market. I think that battery market is, is going to continue to be a little bit wild, wild west uh, for the next two years. Um, and I think those who get in right now are going to be huge winners. Anyone with operating assets and battery is a huge winner right now. There's a lot of value in it, and you're going to, you're going to make a lot of money um, as that market develops. Are you uh, in, a play, in a position to be able to talk about where you see developers making smart moves in battery, like uh, either regionally or services stack? I just think that there are a few really strong, really smart developers in the country um, who really know what they're doing with battery. And I think that you look at, you know, merchant plus tolling and how that's playing out. Um, I think the next two to three years in ERCOT are going to be huge for battery developers. And then that is going to turn and you're going to see a lot more hedging and tolling as uh, the companies that are providing that come to understand, like right now it's, it's a little bit vulturistic. Like I'll give you a price and I'll trade your asset or you trade your asset. And I take, you know, I'll give you a, a guarantee of a certain floor. I think that moves up over time as people get more comfortable and understand long-term how that plays out. It's already happening. The first tolling agreement is probably the worst. Um, people use it because they're an infra fund. They need debt. They want to lever it. Um, it just makes more sense. Um, but most infra funds don't want merchant. And so that's why you need a solution. For the layperson at a high level, what is tolling? Any way you can hedge or get a contract. So uh, I'm going to produce a certain amount of electricity over a given year from the battery, or I'm going to, I'm going to run it at, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to charge it at, off peak and I'm going to discharge it at peak. So I'm playing this game where I'm bringing in electricity, lower cost, and I'm discharging at a higher cost. You're basically having someone guarantee you 
what you can sell at or a minimum, you know, a minimum revenue for a year or five years or seven. Is tolling a new, like a, not a new, but is it is a synonym for like contract for differences? You could have contract for differences. Some of them run more like PPAs. Like okay. if you go to a utility and they give you a tolling agreement and that might just be, we're paying you to be there. Oh, right? I see. Yeah. So that's like a capacity agreement. Could be. Okay. It's all over so the tolling map. Is more of a tolling is more of an umbrella term and there are different ways <laughs> to achieve. The, the okay. way I'm using it is someone smart, some, someone smarter than me and more <laughs> educated on the battery space. Uh, probably <laughs> yeah. people who work with me probably yeah. would have a, a tighter answer as to toll versus hedge versus capacity agreement. But I'm using it broadly as I'm using it broadly as ways to hedge the battery that enable you to go to lenders or others and say, at a minimum, I can repay you. That's right. It's a credit easing uh, mechanism. Essentially, it's a way to get to have to offload the risk to someone else who has a higher risk tolerance. But let's be clear, like most of those agreements, you're also giving them upside. So if I make more than X, we're going to split the difference at some level. And so I'm willing to give that up to, to get a secure, right? Yeah, perfect. That's super helpful. I mean, I, you, Rob, you have no idea how long it took me to learn that when I was at Conergy, just trying to figure that. Because we were trying to build these projects in Mexico and Guatemala and Panama and Chile. Like we, we were reliant on companies that were willing to do these, uh, these tolling agreements mm-hmm. and hedge the downside it's really hedging the downside it's the bank saying it's fine that you think you've got you know this huge upside but what about the downside what about the scenario where i don't want your revenue to go below x and so how do you get your your returns to get fixed at x but also by doing that you're opening yourself up to 50 or 60 infrastructure funds that could not invest in your project otherwise i want to turn towards a mechanism that people did use and then in the all through the teens, and it was very quietly, like a very successful way. And then all of a sudden, um, early pandemic, everybody was talking about SPACs. We've recently seen uh, Proterra bite the dust, one of my favorite SPACs. Uh, I had so such high hopes for some of these SPACs. And you know, Vast out of Australia just announced a SPAC to NASDAQ, uh, like 900 million they raised. It's, it, it's remarkable to me that companies like Heliogen, which is an idea lab company and and vast, both are focused on concentrating solar a technology. You and I um, probably both believed was had seen its had seen its better days. Is SPAC a vehicle that is more or less reserved these days for technology focused endeavors? I think it's it's kind of gone the other way. I think hmm. look, the biggest issue with SPACs was it took the place of venture capital. So it basically you weren't ready for the market. You didn't have returns. You didn't have cash flow. You didn't have EBITDA. You had a dream of building something, whatever that tech was, uh, the first, you know, first RNG plan or the first plastic paralysis plan or, you know, EV charging at some level, but you're doing something that's completely, a lot of them were unproven. And what happens is you come out of the gate and if you don't meet what you've been telling the market, you don't meet the numbers, the revenues, the growth, the production, you're building a car, you don't meet the production numbers, you're immediately start going down. And if you don't have enough capital to ride that out, you're going to keep going down and your ability to raise more capital is going to keep getting worse. So it's a, it's a death spiral 
going public. Meanwhile, you have to keep up with all the fixed costs of being public. Your name's being dragged. Like, I don't know why, you know, an individual, you know, it's tough to go through that. Whereas if you have an established company and you de-SPAC and you're meeting numbers and you're hitting that, but most companies that I think are really doing well and really hitting those numbers may just go IPO instead of de-SPAC. And, and then I think SPAC just became a bad word as more of the companies in our sector didn't do as well as they had projected, right? So I think that trend is reversing back to where tech is tech. And we still see so many new growth. It goes back to the beginning of the conversation where you, you were talking about the acceleration of our space. God, I've never seen so many new technologies at once. Everyone coming out, it's always a question about, can you scale it? Will it work if you scale it? Like all these things that we're dealing with a lot of that ourselves. Are we in an economic situation right now with the, with the sort of the influx of back to the IRA and all the incentives with developers able to take risks on technology? Uh, you know, back in the early teens, we couldn't take risks on technology. You could only buy from call it 10 different solar module manufacturers. You only buy from three or four inverter manufacturers. You couldn't consider a, uh, you know, an electrolyzer project alongside your solar project with any, with any validity. Do you see developers uh, beyond the mega developers like the Intersects able to take advantage of new technology introduction alongside financing these portfolios? Is that? I don't really see it at this point. Um, mm -hmm. Where you may see that more is in the EV sector, EV charging. You may see like the North Leaf deal they just did, like, you know, with EV Passport. Maybe, maybe they're going to look at different technology. I, I don't know. But EV charging seems to be like where panels were 10 years ago. There's so many companies. And it's impossible to know who's got the right, the right mojo. Well, I'm sure the people in it have a pretty good feel, but you, you definitely hear different things, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, from like, I remember the Cinetics guys coming straight out of AES, mm -hmm. making trips to Trina when I was at Trina, Trina's facilities, Trina's you know, field uh, operations, asking legitimate questions like, is this company going to be around? <laughs> right. And Trina is right. the now largest importer of record in the United States, two years running of solar panels. I, actually, I think like if you think about panels, the issue was never about, can I buy from Trina? The, 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 the issue was, what line am I buying on? What what line in China are you making these panels on? And there was like two companies, solar buyers and I think CEA that would go actually sit there and watch them and make sure. And then you have to test them to make sure you were getting the right panel. So I don't think panels is an issue at all. And I think there are so like the big question is how many new panel manufacturers can actually we support in the U.S. and how many are there? Um, most of the ones getting built already have pre-commitments. Uh, you know, I think Hellion uh, had already pre-commitments from Nexamp and, and others, I think, that yep, over a gigawatt. Yeah, that would help them. Basically, you have five years of runway. All you have That's to do right. is build it. Um, there yeah. are others. Um, I think the same is true for the same. Well, NextEra basically mm -hmm. bankrolled the Jinko um, uh, Jacksonville plant, right? Same, same for Q-Cells. So you're seeing Next that Era, all over the place, but there's more than that. Hey there, Solar Warrior. I have a quick question for you. Are you personally 
seeking to leave a legacy. I have been working over the last year with our friends from Bodhi and Unirac on sharing with you those of us who are on the front lines, really digging and building businesses that are in fact leaving a legacy. What does that look like? And how do we survive and thrive through this solar coaster that we're all on? I invite you to join us for our final of this four-part series on leaving a solar legacy. It's happening on February 1st at 12 p.m. Central, 1 p.m. Eastern. Exclusive solar industry insights that we call How to Embrace Innovation to Survive the Solar Coaster. We'll be joined by my friend Spencer Fields, the Director of Insights at Energy Sage, as well as Peter Lawrence, CEO of Unirac, and Scott Wynn, the CEO of Bodhi. I invite you to come join us. Discover how solar businesses tackled challenges and found innovative solutions in a very, very tough market. Overcoming high interest rates got you down. How to build a robust pipeline, identify valuable innovations and trends, and upskill your operations team for business resilience. We'll do Q&A and go deep on your specific questions. So don't miss out on these lessons learned and future forecasts for the solar industry. There are limited spots available. You can reserve yours at mysuncast.com forward slash solar legacy. Mark your calendar. Stay ahead in the solar business game. See you there, Solar Warrior. You know, in terms of other stuff, there's there's not a lot of like new tracker companies per se. Novados. Yeah, Novados. I'll just throw a plug out for those guys. They're killing it. Jan will thank you for that. I'm sure. (laughs) For sure. He loves them. But yeah, you don't see as much is my point. Um, of that new tech in our world. Uh, The biggest new tech is battery. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you've seen what's happening in that market. I mean, some of the battery integrators, manufacturers, et cetera, some have issues and some are having less issues. So that is all going to take time to develop. Rob, I want to come back to something that we talked about earlier, and that is the relative liquidity of the equity markets and how it moves the dynamic of the way developers consider the portfolio growth. Given what we've said about sort of the reality of the equity markets today, where uh, whether or not PE funds are able to successfully continue renewing their funds, the lack of exit into uh, the public markets with, um, with IPOs, what about the equity market do you see today that's really driving the narrative in 2024 that you feel developers in particular should take into consideration? Yeah, I think... And this is something that I think a lot of developers don't pay enough attention to, and, and it's really important too, which is I'm developing a project. What's my exit for that project? Mm-hmm. Who am I selling it to? And, and when you look at people who really focus on that are, you know, Invenergy, Intersect, Martin Herman at Bright Night. These are the visionaries of our business and why. It's because when they're, not to say there aren't others, Paul Gaynor, clearly, like, when you think about the people that lead our industry, they always have a view on the exit game, right? And they probably know what I'm about to tell you, which is that the equity market has materially changed over the last two to three years. How so? Before, we had 10, 20, 30 funds, billion-dollar funds to $7 billion funds. They were being raised every year, every other year, and investing in this market pouring, pouring, pouring dollars into this market. As those equity guys started finding that money was drying up, so going to LPs and trying to raise more capital was becoming more of a challenge, 
many of these companies moved towards credit funds. What I mean by that is if I'm an equity fund and I put $100 million in your company, I own 50% of the company, 100% of the company, and I put more money in and I'm going to eventually sell it for a billion dollars and I'm going to make a certain amount depending on my ownership. Credit funds say, I'll give you $200 million, but you have to pay me at least 12%, 15%, and I have to get a return on my money, otherwise known as a MOIC, M-O-I-C, um, a return on my money that is equal to one and a half times what I put in or 1.75, and that may vary over a period of time. So if I give you $100 million, you have to pay me $150 million. That could come in year two, it could come in year three, it could come in year four, but at a minimum, you have to either pay me 50, 15% a year or the one five. Mm. And that's changed the game. That Now my cost of capital is not equity, which could be as low as eight, it could be as high as 40%, but I don't know what it is until I exit and I'm going to ride the wave to try to get there to, oh boy, I got to repay these guys and I got to do it within a certain period of time, that market has exploded. The credit funds, Blackstone, BlackRock, ECP has one, Stonepeak has one, uh, I-squared has one, GIP has a huge one. I mean, all these credit funds, they're all being built on billions of, you know, HPS, Sixth Street. These are all common names. They're not doing equity. Even Apollo is doing mostly credit. So that's a huge constraint that I don't have a partner necessarily just driving this train forward and hoping we get there to the exit. I have a partner that's saying, let's go. But at a minimum, you've got to hurdle this. And that means I've got to build projects at 10 plus percent and I got to sell them at seven or some spread that makes up the difference. In a, in, a, in a relatively not long period of time to get them their return. And then I make money after that. And some of the companies that you see lending money are, the returns are higher. So it's, it's that, that has changed the equity game in our market. There's just not as much pure common equity. I mean, what it means for, as I'm hearing it, is like brass tacks, most developers, in the early days, if you're if you're a developer right now, in the early days, you're not a, a Sheldon Kimber who's done this for 20 years and has the game locked down, um, or a John Powers at Clean Capital, right? If you're not at that level of the game and you're coming into the market and don't have access to a long-term player, and we'll talk a bit about how how it's changing the way developers are thinking about building their businesses, then the best you can probably hope for over the next three to five years is the salary that you negotiate into the investment. Right. Like it's you're going to get paid to learn how this how this game works right now. I mean, that's that's what I hear when I'm when I'm thinking about like, how are my friends going to get are, the, are my friends going to have a, a seven figure exit when they're able to sell this portfolio? Maybe but they might be able to negotiate a couple hundred thousand dollar salary while they're building the portfolio and they learn how the game actually works and how the money moves and can start making plans for for project or for like, you know, business number two. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's most interesting about that is like people that tend to make the most money are the ones that say, look, I'm just going to develop this, these 10 projects and I'm going to put up a million, two million bucks and I'm going to get site control and I'm going to get to a point where I, I go to the, put it in the queue. 
but I don't have the money or the credit to put it in the queue. That's another thing we got to come back to. I don't have that. So those people sell and they sell to the EDPRs, the EDFs, the, you know, the, the, the NLs, the RWEs that don't necessarily want to have 50 people on their staff doing greenfield because it's not worth their time, but they're willing to pay if you do it. Those people don't need equity. They don't need a lot of money. So those people, you know, those developers end up making a lot. You know, I think when you talk about Sheldon or Paul Gaynor or, or Martin, they look very long term. They want to be an IPP, but they're also looking at ways to get a lot greater alpha out of their projects. They're not building projects to a 10% return. I can guarantee it. They're building them much higher. Um, they're doing mega deals or they're using battery. They're finding other ways to bring value um, to those platforms that will make them those returns. So I, I, I don't want to say that you're just working for your salary. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I just think there's going to be this period of time over the next two years where some of these groups are really strapped um, and will need real equity and not having real equity behind them, but having 15% pref will, will challenge them as you try to refi out or, or do something or raise equity behind it. Yeah. I think that, and I've seen this over the 15 plus years I've been in the project development business and is people would always come when they were asking uh, for either us to invest in or, or buy projects or put panels into projects, they would want a slice of the pie. And I would say to those developers, what I say often, and we're going to say now in this, in this conversation, we're at a place in, in the renewable sector now where every other infrastructure class has has been that has matured, which is find your lane, <laughs> be really good at at duplicating success in that lane. If it's greenfield, like Rob said, there's tons of money there, and it's not super capital intensive. It's human capital intensive, but that's figure outable. Um, find your buyers, your big brothers. You know, we had a EDPR um, folks on talking about how they kind of look at this market as like being a big brother to mm -hmm. those folks that are doing green, green greenfield development. And that's a really smart business model for them because they've got a bunch of infrastructure and a, a lot of templates. And it's not just EDPR. There are another dozen plus companies but, but, like but that. Nico, don't forget one thing that's like absolutely critical and why you almost have no independent wind developers anymore. If you don't mm. have credit or balance sheet to put up LCs against interconnection deposits or otherwise, you're not going to enter the queue. Mm, let's talk about that then. You said let's get back to the queue and let's let's talk about the importance of understanding how uh, this this notion of the interconnection queue works and how it matters. Well, it's just become massively expensive. If you look at someone like David Reister who write, writes uh, for Segway on, on LinkedIn, he's particularly noted the fact that the banks are not providing LC facilities at this point or not providing them at a capital level or at a rate that actually works. For most developers, so and there's very little of it, and all you see every other week is this another huge deal plus power one point what eight billion of of financing. Um, I think Intersex announced a bunch. Uh, Long Road is now like massive facilities, all of them, right? And they all include LCs. But if you're a mid-sized developer, you're probably struggling to get the same LC capacity. If you're a wind developer, it's really hard. All these big companies like Nextera, they already have these facilities. They already have a balance sheet. They have ways to 
uh, get themselves into the queue. So if you're not of size, you're going to struggle. You're going to have to sell your project just to maintain the position that you put it in. If you don't know what LC is, you don't need to be in the game. But <laughs> just for those who are wondering, out of curiosity, it's letters of credit. It's the ability to show that you have the financial wherewithal to build the project. If you do get approved in the queue, it's a way for the utility developers. It's a way for utility developers working with utilities to prevent a bunch of cowboys from locking up positions in the queue and not building projects and preventing real projects from getting built. Yeah, I think that's where all the interconnect, like all the ISOs are going. They're, they're starting to try to, they've got like, I've got 25,000 gigawatts or 250,000 gigawatts that are coming into my queue. I need to sort these out. I need to figure out who's real and who isn't, right? Um, and one way to do that is say, put up or shut up. Give me a $25 million LC just for this interconnect. And, you know, we'll see. If you can't, then we know you don't even have the wherewithal. To, if you can't put up a $25 million LC, how are you going to build a $200 million project? So you see a lot of that. And by the way, like, this is exacerbated by fivefold in battery, standalone battery storage. Why? It takes a lot more capital. <laughs> and there's such a big need for capital. And because in utility scale, you're going to have a contract. You're going to have a 10, 15, 20-year contract. In battery, there's no guarantee. So if you're going to run that thing merchant, who's giving me an LC to do that? So what you see is the big guys, you know, whether it's IPA or Jupiter, they're able to avail themselves of these facilities. But the midsize and smaller, it, it's tougher. And, and I'm going to add another piece to this puzzle, which is that all these lenders that put these things up are very relationship driven and they need to do a lot of business, but they only have a certain amount of staff. They're very limited in their staff and they're not trying to just put out as much money as possible and make as money as possible. They have a budget. They're trying to put out a certain amount of capital. They have a certain amount of staff and they're not willing to kill them at the end of the year or in the middle of the year just to give you a $50 million letter of credit for your earner. They don't, that's not their business. They'd much rather go to Sheldon at Intersect, give them $500 million and be like, there you go, $500 million. We make the same amount on one deal and we know it's money good, right? Sheldon's getting so much free publicity well, out of this episode. <laughs> I'm just, it's, it's just an example. They've done a good job. You can say the same thing for Paul or Invenergy or, you know, yeah. I, I guarantee you like Megan Schultz and Invenergy has negotiated like a million of these and there's probably yeah. no one better. I should have Megan on to talk about it. You should. Yeah. I'll let you, uh, I'll let you cue that one up for me. <laughs> Megan, we're coming after you. I want to, I want to know everything about how, uh, how you manage negotiating these LCs and your portfolio. Um, yeah. fascinating. What, what, what else, Rob, what else do, uh, folks misunderstand? I think the biggest thing you should come away from this whole discussion is if I'm a developer or I'm a business owner and I'm building something, I don't want to wait till I go to the market to know what, what my exits are. I want to know going in, what do I need to be building to, to get to a place where people want to own my company? How do I set up my company? Do I need an O&M group? Do I need to go vertically integrate certain portions? If I'm a community solar developer, am I okay hiring a third party to do my subscriptions? Or am I better off building my own subscription platform? What's that going to take? How do I do it? You have to think about all these things as you go in rather than wait for the other end. And how do I set up my company so that 
I'm organized when I go to the market. What are people going to be looking for, you know, as you, as you do those deals? I mean, the prime example I guess I could give you there is ERCOT. You don't really see a lot of repeat buyers in ERCOT. It's, there's almost no way to know if I build this field of dreams, will they come? You, you almost have to just have such a good idea or a vision or know how you can get a contract that works to make those deals work. Because ERCOT is a place that's like the wild, wild west. You have people come in and out, and it's very unclear as to who comes in and when, right? Um, some people have done really well, and some people have gotten really hurt, mainly from URI or Hedges or otherwise, right? Man, what what a uh, tremendous download. Uh, my brain is swelling at the moment, and I'm grateful for it. I want to, Rob, for, uh, first of all, thank you. This is super, super helpful. I know that we, sh- we share a lot of other common interests. One of those uh, is reading. I often will say something to you, and you're like, oh, this book that you should have read about that thing. And I thought I would ask a question that we normally uh, always ask, and that is kind of how do you think about personal development? And I'd love for you to share a ways that you develop your own personal acumen and, and B, if within that, are there any particular books that have captured your attention that you gift a lot or that you think are essential knowledge sort of tomes that people should be ingesting? Yeah. I, you know what? I'm not a, I'm not a big reader. <laughs> so when I do read, um, I tend to be really fixated in, in certain areas. As you know, I, I have, I probably have way too many hobbies um, including, uh, you know, studying languages is sort of my thing yeah. on my leisure, but, but uh, yeah, but, but, um, while learning one, you forget another, but sure. Uh, I think I, I, but I, I recently, my, uh, I had a business co executive coach a few years ago and she recommended a book called Davos man. And it's all about how the whole organization of Davos came together um, maybe it was initially seen to be as um, philanthropic, but as it went forward, um, it really turned out to become capitalistic. And the top, the billionaires uh, of the world, basically molding the rest of us to what they wanted, which basically makes them wealthier as opposed to doing the things that you think Davos is supposed to be, it became more exclusionary than it became inclusionary. And to me personally, that's a little bit how renewables has developed over the last five years. And I think this is a little bit avant-garde. I don't know that a lot of people would say this, but I think that there are certain organizations, there's certain lobbying, there's certain conferences that have now made it so hard for the mid-sized people, mid-sized groups, or you know, um, smaller banks to be involved at the same level, because without putting up enough capital to join an organization or to attend a conference or sponsor a conference or do something really meaningful, you don't get inside the room. And mm. being one of the I don't, I don't know that I'm a pioneer, but maybe I was a pioneer in banking in the space. Mm-hmm. It's disappointing um, to see that we're not really 
given the passion, the, the reason why we got into this, yeah. that we're more inclusionary. Because mm-hmm. it's the younger people that really, they, they are going to drive this in the future. They want to see it. But when they're not really in the room, they're not really seeing how it's all working, especially in D.C. Yeah. So Davos, man, when you read about that and how, how that comes about, is really interesting. I think the other thing that's really important for anyone running a company is to read um, Patrick Lencioni. Yes. He's read a lot of, written a lot of books, but dysfunction a of, of a team. Favorites? The five dysfunctions. The five dysfunctions. You don't realize how many companies are completely dysfunctional until you really read how the good ones really work, how culture and teamwork really drives that. And I think one of the reasons why I joined Piper um, a small commercial is that the team game is really critical and yeah. I'm in renewables, I'm in ESG, but that's not all I'm about because of my massive ADD. I look at, as you could tell from this interview, I look at tons of, tons of things. So we're doing mechanical recycling. We were doing lithium extraction. We were doing, we're doing plastic paralysis. Well, sometimes I need my chemical team. Sometimes I need my ag tech team. Sometimes I need yeah. our head of even mobility. Sometimes we need our research analysts, right? We have experts in a lot of areas that in other banks or other places, they would not be willing to really work on something that you're bringing in or you're running or you're building because it's not profitable to them. And I think, you know, uh, what's the saying? Like, all, all, you know, all ships rise, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. rising tide, rising raise, tide. All, raise all ships. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's how you build a business. Um, yeah. you, you have to uplift people. You have to give them responsibility. You have to trust. Trust is massive in that, but Lencioni does. And it's such an easy read. It's such an incredible job. So I want to, I want to recommend two more and I'm going to link to the five dysfunctions and I'm going to link to an Amazon list of all the Patrick Lencioni books, which you can also click through if you find the five dysfunctions. But I think two of his most uh, popular ones outside of the five dysfunctions, which I think is probably his most popular are the ideal team player, which reminded me, uh, you reminded me of when, um, when you were talking about how it really does take a team. It's not an individual. The other is the advantage, which is about organizational health. And then the one that I think that folks should read if they are specifically focused on services like you and I are, Rob, like if you're a service-based organization, there's a book that he wrote. It's a called, it's called Getting Naked, a business fable about shedding the three fears that sabotage client loyalty. <laughs> that book is a fantastic read. I listen to books. So it's a fantastic listen. Um, it's one of my time hacks. I, I actually don't ever sit down and read a book. You talking about Kindles. I, I have a Kindle that I may as well give away. So you mentioned that you nerd out on languages. How do you continue the practice of language acquisition or language uh, support? Is there, Do you use an app or is there some other way? I don't. Um, I mean, I learned a long time ago that it's really just use and obligation. Uh, Immersion. So, yeah. So for about 10 years, I, I actually had a Spanish teacher who would, we'd either Zoom after COVID for 60 minutes a week um, and only speak in Spanish or he would come to the office every week and we would we would spend 90 minutes together only speaking Spanish. What I do now is um, every opportunity I have and my family hates this uh, because they think I just assume everyone speaks Spanish is anywhere I go where I know that, you know, I'm speaking with someone who's actually Hispanic, 
Latino, Spanish, yeah. whatever. I just speak Spanish. I just yep. don't speak in English. Like to be clear, yeah. and including the first five minutes of our interview That's when right. I jumped into the uh, to the studio, I love it. Right, just immediately started speaking to me in Spanish, and that this is like proof positive that you do practice what you're saying. Right? I just try. Um, yeah, you know, I haven't really spoken a lot of Japanese since since I lived there, um, mm. but we. But you have a working you have a working knowledge of four languages: English, Spanish, Japanese, and French. Anything else? No. My French is okay. pretty much non-existent, except I can probably curse you out. Um, <laughs> I was completely fluent, but I do understand a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With Japanese, it's like, you know, I, I went to mm. Las Vegas recently. I went to a sushi restaurant with my friends and I ended up speaking to the chef for an hour. You know, no way. I didn't even think I could do it anymore. It, it sort it's of, the more you drink, the better you get. But I guarantee yeah. you, like, there were a few Spanish words that slipped out. Like, yeah. you know, I almost need someone who speaks Japanese and Spanish so that I can, the words I miss, I can go in Spanish because my brain just goes that way. That's amazing. Um, but it, it's That's just, fun. it's just obligating yourself. Like, you know, obviously I go to Spain uh, once or twice a year and I refuse to speak English while I'm there. And, and you know how it is. Like you go somewhere, my daughter just said it, or one of her friends just came back from Madrid and she said, but they kept answering me in English. I said, oh, yes. well, first of all, your accent is horrible. But, but aside from that, don't stop. What do you for? They want to practice yeah, their English as much as you want exactly. to practice Spanish. That's fine. Flip it around. Let them speak Just to you go. in English. What I say often <laughs> is if they respond to me in English, I will say to them in Spanish, if it's okay with you, I'm going to continue speaking in Spanish. You continue speaking in English and let's correct one another. If Don't be afraid. If I say something different or wrong, let me know and I'll help you with your English. Are we okay with that? <laughs> I would never and ask. The number- I would never ask to be corrected because my Spanish teacher. We, we went to. We were in Barcelona. We met with him and his girlfriend and my daughters. My family were there, and my daughter also took lessons from him. And the whole time they're speaking in English, and I was speaking in Spanish. But he was correcting me every three seconds. And I said, "This is why no one wants to speak to you in Spanish anymore." Yeah. Well, there's maybe there's overdoing it, <laughs> but but I think that welcoming. And I try to teach my children this too. Welcoming. Welcoming uh, critique and and uh, and correction and being okay with it, not taking it personally, recognizing that it's through failure that we find success. The fear of failure is the is like one of the greatest sicknesses in in humanity. And as ADD sufferers, like we fear failure more than most. There's not a lot of fear of failure in the solar market. I'll say that right now. Oh my goodness! Yeah, there's a lot of failure. That's for but sure. There's not, but there's no fear. <laughs> no one thinks they're gonna mm. fail. For sure. That's right. Yeah. Rob Sternthal, you have believed in the beauty of the dream that is the solar evolution for the better part of uh, the last two decades. You've been a pioneer that I and many others have looked to for guidance and advice. And uh, I know that not only Piper Sandler, but the clients therein uh, are grateful that you bring n- not just a foundational pioneering understanding of how the equity markets work and how it can help your clients, but a sense of levity to the situation and, uh, and fun and, uh, infusion of, uh, of multiple languages. So, um, I'm grateful that we had a chance to learn from you. I want to ask before we ask the final question, if folks are so inclined, they want to get to know you better. They want to just follow along with you. Where do you like to be found and how can folks connect with you? Uh, you probably grab my email off our website. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm actually one of the easiest people to get to except for the, you know, hundred or so students that 
reach out to me every month or so that I, I sort of try to try to limit. I, I won't, I don't fully limit it, but I, I definitely try to to some extent. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me. So 10, I've been a deep, like I've been a LinkedIn uh, advocate and fan and super user since 2006. I mean, literally since the beginning, I've been a premium, a premium paying user since 2008. And so it's always fun when someone will DM me on LinkedIn and say, will you email me the way you did and the way probably a hundred other people did this week. And I'll respond and say, we're already chatting. Can we just chat here? Right. Like, and, and, and in fact, you and I ended up like you emailed me, but we ended up communicating most of our, what we needed to communicate over LinkedIn DMs. And I appreciate that. I'm really grateful for that because I suck at emails, you and everyone else knows. But I will say that Rob is very responsive uh, in, in LinkedIn. And obviously, given his uh, nod to David Reister and the Segway Infra folks and Joe uh, Song uh, over there, like he's in LinkedIn looking around. So, so he will notice if you're actually saying anything worth saying on LinkedIn. Um, so follow him and reach out to him. Um, Rob, I'm grateful for people uh, like you who really do walk the talk. And it's something that's borne out over time, right? That's, it's a reputation that's built over time. And I think that you've definitely earned the reputation of credible, pioneer, uh, insightful on the front lines. Um, if we look out to, let's just say, you know, well, we just had uh, COP28 and 200 countries agreed that we're going to wean ourselves off of fossil fuel. Isn't it amazing? Like who gets to go to that and, and, and make these and make these crazy pronouncements, but don't actually have to do any of the work. I mean, I, there's like a 20 year old who's really become famous for a lot of this. And, and, and uh, I'm not even going to give you any clues, but that person goes and puts out all this information and links and stuff. And I'm like, I've like, are you, what are you actually doing? Right. So the cop 28 <laughs> thing, really, I know there's a lot of big movers and shakers that do go, but it, it, you know, it, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Let's say we get to 2050 and 200 countries have achieved the goal by, you know, getting to 2049 and saying, okay, now we're really serious. We're going to stop. What did we get right to build the infrastructure necessary to truly wean ourselves off fossil fuels, to address the climate action that is necessary to you know, provide a healthy, living, livable planet for our children's children? Well, let's be clear. Like I'm not a oil and gas naysayer. Um, uh, I think that you need, you need a lot of different things to work. I think the EV infrastructure is probably one of the biggest challenges we're going to face aside from grid infrastructure. So you've got two problems. You've got grid infrastructure. You've got EV infrastructure. You've got to convince people to buy an EV. I still can't convince my wife. And it's not like she's traveling 400 miles a day. So there's no range anxiety. We need to keep driving the cost of producing hydrogen down. We need to produce, we may need to go nuclear. Like there's so many, the small, there's SMRs coming. Like all this stuff Honestly, it almost all has to happen. The direct air carbon capture. I mean, is that really going to work? Is it really going to be cost effective? I don't know. But you, like all this stuff feels like it has to come together. Rob, the work that you've done has certainly been redemptive in nature, I believe. And I'm grateful that uh, we've been able to capture some of it here in the last 70-ish minutes. Thank you for taking time to be here on Suncast with us. Thank you, Nico. It's, it's been an honor. I really appreciate it. Man, sometimes you have these conversations that just blow your mind. And it's really 
funny, Rob and I, when we hit you know stop on that episode, both said, why haven't we done this before? And I was reflecting on how Rob was one of the first to teach me uh, through observation what it looks like to craft a mastermind dinner, to actually get people together that needed to chat and to uh, to architect these community meetings. And Rob's not alone. Mona Dejani is another who's a mastermind at it. Uh, if you haven't listened to her episode, uh, she's a true badass. Um, there are people in this industry who are silent movers and shakers. Uh, people like Rob are connected to everyone. Uh, you really are doing yourself a disservice if you aren't following Rob and Mona and, and other thought leaders that we interview here on Suncast. So I'm grateful that you've made it all the way through this episode. And, and I hope that you are taking away the takeaways that, that resonate for you in particular. And, you know, Rob, he enunciated very well the things that for him are what you should be taking away. Uh, how do I set my company up to begin with the end in mind? The whole conversation today can be summed up in, you know, lesson two of Stephen Covey's book, um, begin with the end in mind. He outlined numerous examples of how to think about the way you need to go about building your company as you go into building the company. What's the purpose of it? How do you recruit the right kinds of people around you? If you're struggling with raising capital or raising uh, the, your, your level of vibration around what kind of capital you need in your business, reach out to Rob. He is a, a deep well of not only knowledge and experience, but he's such a giver. Thank you, Rob, for taking the time to come on Suncast. Thank you, dear friend, for watching or listening all the way through this episode. I want to wish you a happy new year. Believe me, if you if you made it through this episode, you are one step closer to achieving your purpose and career and dreams in the clean energy revolution. And I salute you. If you're curious about how to find the books or other research and whatnot, links that I uncovered in the in the doing and the making of this episode you can find all that at mysuncast.com there's a whole lot of other stuff that you can find there as well ways to connect with me ways to think about uh partnering with us on this journey you know we've been so blessed over the last two years to help some of my favorite companies in the industry share their message not just on this platform but in uh, their own platforms thank you to all those who've helped to support and uh, provide the financial lift to keep this show free for all of our listeners. We call them sponsors, but they're more than that. They're partners. If you'd like to learn ways to partner with us, you can go to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor and see how you could help us get this message out to thousands of listeners across all of our platforms each and every week, twice a week. Tactical Tuesdays, Executive Profiles, live broadcasts, live streams, digging into everything from COP28, to what's up with the IRA. My name is Nico Johnson, as you probably well know. As the host, it's my job to find and bring these conversations to you. Now it's your job to go out into the world and make meaning, make this place better. Our kids are, wet and are counting on us. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solo Warrior. It's half the battle.